Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, with Pastor John King. Ready to go uh, celebrate. <laughs> that was very inspiring. Thank you, Miss Heidi. I know she's back with the kids, but let's give Miss Heidi a round of applause. And she's always saying how uh, you guys, your youth group, are such a, a great group of kids. And, uh, you know, it won't be long before you're adults. So these memories will bring into the adult world. I know you probably didn't want that reminder. Or maybe you did. But uh, someday, you youth, we pray that you youth kids will be the ones running the local churches in our country. You know, Calvary chapels or wherever. So you're, uh, you're on our hearts always. And I know your parents as well. Well, this morning we're going to be uh, back in chapter 3 of uh, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to finish chapter 3 today. Uh, we're going to cover our verses today. We're going to cover verses 9 through 13 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, while you're turning there, let's, let's sort of get caught up a little bit. You know, chapter 3 has been a real uh, prayer-filled section. I mean, Paul is being very transparent, expressing his uh, concern, him and his companion. They're, they have a personal concern over this very brand new church in Thessalonica. And as we've learned, their main concerns surround the persecution and suffering that these believers are encountering as they gather together. And not only do churches gather together, but the Lord calls us to go out and evangelize, to go out and present to the culture the gospel message. And, you know, you guys, uh, speaking of our present day, the majority of the church in the world is the persecuted church. We're very privileged, we're very blessed to live in America. We're just a little small part of the bigger church around the world. And so we, we need to always be thankful for that. You can, we can add that to our blessings, that we have a place to gather, that we have freedom to worship, that we have freedom to actually spread the gospel. But he just added, we, we, we saw that at Paul, he was so concerned about this church that he decided he would send his best, Timothy, to go to minister to them. And we remember he said, I'm sending Timothy in order to establish and encourage you. Because remember, they'd only been there for a short while. And he wanted to encourage them in their faith. And along with that, he also reminded them of the fact that neither he nor the others had failed to warn them concerning the persecution and the tribulation that they were suffering. And so he left off chapter 3 with Paul's thankfulness. Because Timothy went and he came back with a trip report. And not only were they thriving and standing fast in the Lord, but they were, had a great desire to see Paul again. I mean, you know, this really brought a lot of comfort to Paul to know that they, they cared about him. And remember, it wasn't easy to stay in contact with people back then. And so he was, he was really, his heart was warmed for that. And it was, it was uh, during a time of Paul was in Corinth and he was going through sort of an, uh, what well, we don't know, what kind of an, an affliction or distress in his present location. But Paul notes in verse 8 from last week, he, he notes that, um, he said, for now we live if you stand. And what that really means is we're really living it up. 
We're really living it up because of your faith and what we hear about what's going on. And this contrasts with the, the definition of where we live. You know, we're always being told about having the good life. How to have a good life. How to have good looks. How to have prosperity. Uh, how to have a good education. How about some adventure and excitement. All those things are good. But that's how we define it. Yet for the Apostle Paul, he defined the good life as knowing and being encouraged by the faith of others. You know, if seeking the good life is your only focus, then you'll never get off the hamster wheel. You'll never stop pursuing it. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. When left to ourselves, you and I, we substitute the artificial for the authentic. The phony for the real, particularly in the mental, emotional, and spiritual realms that we are in. Mentally, we substitute knowledge or even information for true wisdom. Emotionally, we substitute feelings or opinions for true facts. And then spiritually, we substitute the temporal and the earthly for the eternal and the heavenly. And he says this, and I agree. He says, yet when we rely on our own imaginations, it becomes impossible to answer the question, what does it mean to really live? And so we're going to finish chapter 3 today. And we're going to see Paul's prayerful response to the news that they had received from Timothy's trip report. And in this prayer, Paul's going to acknowledge the work that God has done. He's going to throw in and add some personal concerns uh, regarding their need for them to now to start to mature in the faith. So it's one thing to be saved, but it's a whole other thing to grow and be sanctified and grow in the Lord. And then if you're taking notes, he's going to outline three main focus points of the prayer. It's not some blissful prayer. First of all, he's going to focus on their personal fellowship with God. He's going to pray about that. He's also going to pray for their increased love for one another and for all people. And then finally, their personal holiness while we patiently wait for the Lord's return. And that is our life. As we patiently wait for the Lord's return. So let's look at our passage starting with verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let's bow our heads for a prayer, a quick prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that has changed our life. Your word came into our life. Your word brought us to faith in you. Your word is true nourishment to us. It's food. It's water that washes our hearts and minds. Your word reminds us, Lord, 
that you love us, that you have a plan for our life, and that you're coming again. And so, Lord, we thank you once again for the privilege and the honor it is to be here among these brothers and sisters in the Lord today to hear your word. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So Paul, as you look at his verses 9 through 10, you notice we talked about what he considered the good life. And he had a genuine joy and a desire for the perseverance for them to continue in the faith. I mean, who wants to see somebody come to the Lord and then the next thing you know, you never see him again. You don't know what happens to them. And so he wanted to see that they would persevere and not only stick to it, not only stay where God has called them, not only remain true followers of Jesus, but actually to grow in the Lord. And so he expresses gratitude to God. He sang that song, Gratitude, Thankfulness. And he gives it to God because we have learned, we know by now, we should know by now, that the ultimate source of gratitude is the good news we receive from God. It's, it's not, you know, from, pers- from, from a political system or a, a location, a geographic location. It's not from a form of philosophy. It's not from an educational environment. But it's just knowing that God is the ultimate source. And so he starts out where he should. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you? In other words, how can anyone, at least of all themselves, repay God for his marvelous work? Nobody, nobody can do that. Paul knows that he cannot take credit, and this is important for all of us, it cannot take credit for the believer's perseverance through suffering. When we say praise God, we mean, we mean praise God when we hear that praise report. Praise God. And, you know, we often, we point to the things that we do, we do for one another, but praise God. And he gives thanks to God, and that's the fact that God strengthened them to endure the persecution that they were going through. He says, what thanks can we render to God for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God? The gladness, the gratitude that Paul had and his companions for receiving the news of their spiritual condition. Just the simple news. The things we take for granted, huh? The simple news of how they were doing. This man was an apostle. He was a shepherd. He had the heart of Jesus. Remember, Paul, he couldn't stand it. He sent Timothy to find out or to know their faith. He goes, I want to know how you guys are doing. And now notice also, too, though, not only was he you know, very concerned about him, but he prayed fervently. It says, going before God night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, we're going we're gonna to stay here just for a minute. Um, we, we know about prayer. It's to make supplication. But he says, we're praying exceedingly. He says, we're praying so much it's beyond measure. I mean, if you tried to time yourself in your personal prayer time and you reached five minutes, 
it would seem like a very long time. If you could go 10 minutes, I guarantee you say, man, I'm, my knees are sore. <laughs> I've been praying a long time. And Paul says, we pray beyond measure. We see many examples in Scripture of those who are committed to prayer. Okay, and that's why we are committed to prayer. In fact, it's been said that the Word of God and prayer should go together. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, he declared this. He said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. So notice the prayers go with the teaching as well. Night and day, you know, it's never a bad, can you tell me, raise your hand if you know when it's a bad time to pray. You might say, well, I'm, while I'm operating a vehicle, it might be a time to be cautious on how you pray. But we can pray all the time. We've learned that we are wired to have dialogue with God, whatever we're doing. So it's never a bad time to pray. Next, Paul, he turns it personal. He says that we may see your face. He wants to lay eyes on them. And, and, you know, our country went through a really rough time with COVID. You guys know this. These lockdowns were crazy. I mean, maybe it's in your distant memory and you didn't want me to bring it up today. But we were being isolated. Think about it. We were being so isolated from one another. And it was just, quite frankly, overblown. And it really did damage. And suicide rates went really through the roof. Mental illness, everything else. Brothers and sisters, we must be together. We must be together. We are to gather. We want to lay eyes on one another, not in, a, not in, an, imp, uh, in an immoral way, but to be around one another and to fellowship. Next, you'll notice that Paul's prayer request, he's, he's encouraging now. He wants to let them know, and there's a reason for this, which I'll explain in a minute, but he's, he's really concerned that they move towards the maturity of their faith. You know, the Christian life is not static. Organized religion, and I've been a part of it, is all about checking the boxes. Did you go to, did you go to confession Saturday night? Well, if you didn't, you don't get to have communion the next day. Have you said five Hail Marys and five Our Fathers? Have you done all those things? It's all about checking the boxes. That's what organized religion is. But the Christian life is not static. You're not just checking boxes in your sanctification because what happens in your sanctification is you're going to suffer. You're going to have hard days and difficult nights. You're going you're to take a fall. You could be in the hospital. You don't know what's going to happen to you, but that's how your sanctification happens. That's how you and I grow in the Lord. It's through trials and tribulations. Remember, Jesus said, I am always, or I am with you always, even to the edge, end of the age. I'm with you always. And so he says, I want you to move towards maturity in your faith. He says, and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Kartartizo. To perfect means to complete or to prepare. It's used in the Gospel of Mark and elsewhere. It speaks of the mending of fishnets. You know, you're all, we're always being 
as we come to the Lord, when the Lord gets a hold of your life, in some cases you've made a real mess of it, depending on the age that you are. And the Lord is, is looking to perfect you. And so it's like, think about mending your nets, mending your soul and your spirit and your, your mental, you know, everything about you. And that's what he's saying. He wants to perfect. And this comes through the teaching of the word of God and prayer. He says, what is lacking in your faith? Now, what is lacking in their faith? Well, keep in mind, they've only been a church for a couple months. And Paul and the apostles, they wanted to stay there a little bit longer and get this church established. And they wanted to teach the important essential doctrines of the faith. And so one of the things and deficiencies they have, and you see the re- that's because the way this, the reason this letter was written, and the second one, is that they were ignorant about the second coming of Jesus. You know, they were concerned. People were dying. And they're like, well, uh, what if they die before Jesus returns? And so Paul is going to explain that to us. Not today. But we're going to see that more in chapter 4 and 5 and then in 2 Thessalonians. To understand Christ's coming for his church and then with his church. We're going to talk about all of that, but not today. He says, what is lacking in your faith? Paul was rejoicing over Timothy's definition or his report. And I think it's important to rehash, or not rehash, but revisit what the definition of faith is. As it relates to God, it's the conviction that God exists and he is the creator and ruler of all things. He is the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. And as it relates to Christ, faith is a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom you and I, if we're saved, we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. That's faith. That's what we talk about Christian faith. And these are the defining elements of those of you who have trusted in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus for our salvation. But notice, Paul points out another essential truth right in the middle of this. And that's that we, you and I, have not yet arrived. We haven't arrived. Our faith never, on this side of heaven, reaches perfection. We have a place in heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. But there's more. And when we went through the book of Romans, you may recall that the Christian life, as I said earlier, is not static. But you and I go from faith to faith. I mean, you know, lately I've been living on faith. Okay, that should be our full, that's our full life story, living on faith. We go from one chapter of our lives, one page, one moment where we exercise faith, and then we go from the next to the next faith. And we, we, we exercise faith to faith. And along the way, faith needs to be tested. One writer put it this way. He, 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 you know, a good biblical example of, of, of tested faith that we all have, have heard of or are familiar with is Abraham. Father Abraham is a good illustration 
of this principle, this person writes. Remember, God called him to the land of Canaan. He, he sent him off. He goes, just go. Take your whole family. Just go. Where am I going? Just, just follow me. Just go. I mean, how many of you are getting ready to move and you don't know where you're going? You, you do hear that. But most of the time, we want to have a plan in place. Well, Abraham's faith, and God called him to the land of Canaan. And when he arrived, he discovered a famine. And God permitted that famine so that Abraham's faith might be tested. But unfortunately, Abraham decided to help God. And so he failed that test, and he went down to Egypt for help. But each step of the way, God brought circumstances to bear on Abraham that forced him, that forced him to trust God and to grow in his faith. Because faith is like a muscle, you've heard that. It gets stronger with use. Abraham had problems, as we know, with his worldly nephew, Lot. He also had problems with his wife and her handmaid, Hagar. And the ultimate test of faith when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. Remember those stories. And this writer says this. He says, faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Faith that cannot be tested can't be trusted. God tries our faith not to destroy it, but to develop it. And if Abraham had not learned to trust God in the famine, he could have never trusted him with other difficulties. So our immediate reaction when we're being tried, when we're being tested, our faith is being tested, is to get it fixed or get it out of here. Just, you know, let's put this, let's put this behind us. But that's not God's plan. Because faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. Amen? We talk about the apostles' teaching, and Pastor John talked about that a, uh, several weeks ago. You know, our, our Calvary distinctives. We, we, we gather together for fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the apostles' teaching and prayer. This is what we would refer to today as the Bible, the New Testament, along with the Old Testament. And that has been given, us, given to us as a tool. We have this book. The Bible is what's being used now to perfect our faith. It's to help us to perfect our faith. And we know that the basics is it is the foundation of our faith. And Jesus was the chief, is the chief cornerstone of our faith. Now, how often do you have somebody come to mind who perhaps is a professing Christian, but is not growing in their faith? And the answer is, well, very often. Unfortunately, we see that a lot. And this is why we, and, and Bible teaching churches, stress the need for Christians to get established and to remain in a Bible teaching church. But that's not the only part. Remember, Paul was greatly encouraged by the faith of others. There was this mutual uh, concern, okay? It's not just ministry checking the boxes and growing by numbers, you know, trying to, trying to bring in a, a body count, counting noses and nickels. But it's experiencing genuine comfort when you and I share in our faith and hearing what, the, what God is doing in our lives. 
And oftentimes we, we have so much to talk about before we get to that very personal thing about God and what he's doing in our lives. You know, we're either overwhelmed by life or we've had a, a very recent, you know, encounter with danger or maybe death or you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. Or uh, oftentimes we allow the world's events to come in. And so we got to get all that out. We got to talk about that. And by the time we get through doing all that, we're too tired to talk about God and what he's doing in our lives. That's what happens. You guys know it. I mean, we are to be patient with one another. You know, we're not going to walk around super spiritual and start to put on a big fake phony mask. Well, the Lord hath spoken to me. And we're not going to do that. But we, we have a hard time cutting through all the clutter, don't we? In our, our relationships. And so you and I, we all need to seek, I'll say, loving relationships that allows for those kind of questions. What's the Lord doing in your life? Why is he asking me that? How is your walk with Jesus? Remember, he said, Paul, in verse 5 of chapter 3, in this letter, he said, I sent to know your faith, lest some of, by some means the tempter had tempted you. Satan, our enemy. And then he said, and then our labor might be in vain. Now maybe, you know, you, know, you get tired of saying it that way, but how about giving one another encouragement? How about saying, you know, I'm encouraged. I've been just, I see what the Lord's doing in your life. I'm encouraged to see what he's doing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Before we move into our next section, we need to be reminded again just how sacrificial Paul was being in sending. He was in Athens. Some of you have actually been to Athens recently. He was in Athens. That was the place. That was a happening place for all the hot the topics, the philosophy, everything was going on. And, you know, Paul's like, I'm going to send my best guy back to this little church way up in the country. Well, it wasn't such a small city, but I'm going to send him up there because I care about it so much. I'm going to send Timothy to help establish them. And you know, we talked about that last time. He had their best interests at heart. And this is the difficult part for us, isn't it? Isn't this what's challenging for us? We say we want to have others' best interest at heart. But our own interests always seem to take precedence, don't they? There's a country song that says, I was always on my mind. Or something like that. <laughs> our own interests always seem to take precedence. And you know, we, we look at Paul and we know that he was human too. And so his own interests... He would have had internal struggles. And so we need to point it back to God. What God causes us to do as we submit to him. One writer said it this way. It was the Lord who was causing Paul to increase and abound in love for these Christians. The Lord was doing it. And it doesn't happen naturally. So we have to ask the Lord Lord, give me a heart of care. Give me a heart of compassion. Give me patience. Give me a heart that says I care more about others than myself. It was the work 
of Jesus Christ that provided for Paul the motive and the power to live a sacrificial life. We're going to have communion today. We're going to celebrate Jesus' sacrificial life today once again when we take communion. Now moving on to our next section, verses 11 through 13. We're going to look at Paul's prayer focus. And we said earlier, you know, he's already expressed uh, the joy that he has, a desire to see them, a commitment to pray for them a lot. And now he's going to hone in on three things that you and I can always be praying for. And we've been saying this all along as we read the, the, the letters. You get a pattern for how to pray for somebody in a general sense. And it's so important. I mean, you can never... I could say you could never go wrong. You may not know, or you may know certain things that are going on. We have prayer requests all the time. We, we want to keep those going. We, we definitely want to go before the Lord. We were talking about that this morning with specific prayer requests. Absolutely. But how about committing to pray for the things we're going to talk about on a regular basis? It's going to be a challenge for us today. In fact, think of it as a built-in prayer list. I care that Pastor John has his time with the Lord. And I might, by occasion, say, how's your walk with the Lord? Have you had some devotions? Have you been praying? I might talk to Pastor John, or he might talk to me about, you know, how are we doing in the love side of things? How, how are we loving others? You know, are we caring for our wives? You know? Are we doing what the Lord has called us to do? And I have to remind him and myself that we are to be living holy lives because we're patiently waiting for Jesus' return. Now, you may not be that personal with somebody, but you can certainly pray that for them. In fact, you can say anything you want to Jesus. You can say anything you want to the Lord. He's the one you need to go to first, especially when you got something bad to say. But Paul starts in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. But notice, he starts out with our God. Now look, you can say, oh, that was a great title. Let's go to the verb. You know, the noun, the descriptors are our God. Who is our God? Well, we sing about it all the time. He is supreme, majestic, creator, the maker of all things. He's the giver and sustainer of life. He dwells everywhere. He's perfect in every way with all power, knowledge, and being. That's our God. Now, many people would perhaps agree with that. If I said this, if they believe there is a God, you know, the generic term, then they would perhaps believe what I just said about God. But notice there's much more to be said. Our God and Father himself. He is active in the lives of believers just as an earthly father should be. He's involved in the lives of his own children. That's our Father. Our Father is not some cosmic, far-removed being. And so as a child of God, Paul approaches him with this prayer request. So our God and Father himself, and then, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is also praying to Jesus, the Lord himself. 
Jesus, the supreme majestic ruler who always coexisted eternally in heaven but came to earth and was born as a man of flesh and blood. We know him as Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth. This Lord Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's who we pray to. And this Jesus, we may also call him friend, if we trusted in his perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins to be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And this reflects the personal fellowship with God. His next request is corporate. You know, it's, he's now Paul's thinking about how he wants to be with them. We talked about that. He goes, may our God, Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you to make straight or to guide, to remove the hindrances. Even though Paul has this great, awesome uh, you know, trip report from Timothy, he has not given up on his reunion with them. To be directed is to have that hindrance removed. Remember, there was a hindrance of Satan that he talked about in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2. The road for Paul, and many times he, he tried to go back up to the Thessalonica, and the road was, it was though it was washed out. It was just sort of this, this impeding that took in place. The, the, the word speaks of somebody breaking up the path or the road in the direction that you're trying to go, placing an obstacle in it. But we also, as we were reminded in Acts 20, verses 1 through 5, if you're taking notes, you can see that Paul actually did go back and go all the way through Macedonia on his third missionary journey. The next request in the prayer here still in verse 11 is a uh, supplication, excuse me, verse 12, for more or increased love. That old worship song, more love. More power, more of you. That's got some good meaning to it. Warren Wiersbe said this, times of suffering can be times of selfishness. You know, sometimes the first thing is like, oh man, you know, help me. <laughs> Persecuted people often become very self-centered and demanding. If you ever had to care for a loved one who was sick and going through the end stages of their life, there are times when it's very difficult and they can be very self-centered and demanding. But in a general sense, when we look around, especially among the church, you might see somebody who might recently, as we know about Walter, falling off his combine. And when I saw him after, when he was in the hospital, he, was, he couldn't stop talking about the Lord Jesus and who he trusted in. And the Lord was going to give him the strength to kind of get back Literally on his feet. You see, what life does to us depends on where, what life finds in us. You know, our whole time, our whole, you know, these Bible studies, our time in prayer, our growing in the Lord, our life experiences in Christ are to prepare us for what's within us when trouble comes. And nothing, as uh, Warren Wiersbe said, nothing reveals the true inner man like the furnace of affliction. Some people build walls in times of trial and they shut themselves off. Others build bridges and draw closer to the Lord and his people. And this was Paul's prayer for these believers and God answered it. 
And so he says in verse 12, and may the Lord make you. Now pay attention. Don't, it's not just go love others. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. That's our prayer. That's our prayer for one another. May the Lord make me increase in love and abound for you. May you do the same for me. The Lord makes us do it if we are submit to his will. And this is where we've talked about the Father, the Son, and now this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and he empowers us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We talk about it all the time. And make you increase. That means to multiply over and over again and to abound. To cause you to excel. Not just saying the words love and expressing some emotion, but actual practical things. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So it's a command and it's an enabling. We all know the commands. You know the commandments. When Jesus said, they, they said to the scribes and Pharisees kept coming, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? His disciples. And Jesus in Mark 12, 29, 31 answered. He said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. But the how-to is you need to ask the Lord to make you do it. Make me do it. I mean, it's easy to love people and like people that are like you, that like things, the same things that you like. But how about the difficult people in our lives? Lord, make me do it. Make me like you. Now, how can I love someone who's evil? And we see a lot of evil. I don't need to go into it. You can see all the evil you want, all, you can, all your stomach can handle out there. And so how can I love someone who's evil? Is it even humanly possible? And we already know the answer. The answer is absolutely no. It's not humanly possible. And Paul knew the answer as well. And that's why he's asking the Lord to make you increase and abound in love. Only God's agape love, this is agape love now, God's love makes it happen when we open our hearts. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You've got to go to Him. You've got to have a relationship with Him, first of all, to be able to have that ability to love others. And then he talks at the end of that verse, just as we do to you, an expression of mutual commitment. And then in verse 13, our final verse for today, he asked for a request for holiness. He's, he's going before the Lord. He's asking the Lord to bring holiness to bear in our lives, in their lives. And he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. To be established again is to be strengthened or to be made firm. Paul uses this verb many times in this letter. And remember, it's the Lord who establishes us, our hearts before God. Look, Jesus is the only one who has the right to do it. He is the only one who has the right to establish our hearts and to present us blameless before the Father. 
No one else can make us acceptable to God. Nobody else. No thing, no good works, no philosophy. None of that. To make us what? Free from all valid charge. That's what blameless means. To be blameless in his sight. He's talking about holiness. He's talking about moral purity. And when we, you know, when you look at the statistics and the number of men and women who are viewing pornography in the church on a very regular basis. Yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's cleansing from unrighteousness. But it's such a strong drug, and that's what it is. Pornography is a drug. It's such a powerful drug that it'll try to take you down and destroy relationships. And so we're going to talk more about that sexual purity in our next message. I expect all of us to be here, right? Uh, our favorite topics, right? But we need it. We need to know what the Lord's heart is on these matters. Because the time, I believe, is short. I don't know. I don't know a date. You know, there isn't a single word in Scripture that tells me when Jesus is going to rapture the church. Not a single one. So we preach the Bible. But only the Lord Jesus Christ has the power and the ability to present us blameless before God the Father. He lived a blameless life. He rose from the dead and he defeated sin and death. That's what he did. So we've, we've talked about who would establish us and that would be Jesus. Now, when? And he says at the end of this verse, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The coming of our Lord. The word coming is a parousia. This speaks of the second coming of Christ. Notice, with all his saints. Well, he wouldn't be able to come back with all his saints if he hadn't come for them first. So keep that in mind when we get to talking about the rapture. So he's coming with all his saints, and that means the angels, all the believers that he's come and got, the church that he's came and, and rescued from this world before the great tribulation. The word saints mean that we're set apart. We are exclusively His. All because of Him. Paul wanted them to be firmly planted in their faith. That was his concern. He wanted to make sure the instruction got back to them. He wanted to visit them himself. Because God's second coming is a divine certainty. And you and I will only be on one side or the other when Jesus returns. Chuck Swindoll said this, think about it in our modern day world. He says, the world may chip away at God's standards or blast them with the dynamite of anything that goes, this code, this code of carnality, he calls it. But when Christ comes again, we won't be standing before a human judge with a set of scales that are rigged in favor of the sinner. God's idea of right and wrong will be the final standard. And unlike human judges, the divine judge doesn't need to hear evidence or entertain arguments to make his best guess regarding innocence or guilt. He alone knows all things, even the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he is your only defense attorney. Because nobody who stands before God without Jesus has nobody to defend them. And that's a sad truth, but we've got to say it. And we've got to let people know that. 
And I love how we do it, you know, how we present that, how we get, bring that understanding by the power of the Spirit. But as we close, we're getting ready to take communion. As we, as we close, I'd like to ask you guys a, a question. I'd like to challenge us. This pattern of prayer, this praying for others' personal relationship with the Lord, whether it's salvation or they're just they're, they're growing in the Lord, their faith. Praying for the increase of love for one another and for others, their neighbors, those out in the world. And praying for personal holiness. Can we, can we make that a, just a little habit? I'm not going to be able to check up on it, obviously. Can we make that a habit that we would all do? Maybe, you know, think about it, maybe on a regular basis. I mean, I would say do it daily. I would say night and day, as Paul. Night and day. Will we, will we make a habit? Will you guys commit to that? We know we have a bunch of other prayer li- you know, requests that can go there, but as the Lord puts one another on our hearts and minds, will you pray for those things? Remember, you don't have to be in any specific place. Next week, Paul's going to reveal these specific ways to excel. We're going to go take it a little bit further. To excel in the areas of this type of prayer. But if we will make that a habit. If we will make that a habit. Let's um, have the worship team come up and and, uh, prepare for our uh, communion time. Bring the lights down, please. And let's have a time of communion with the Lord. I would ask that we bow our heads and uh, just kind of give some time here to think about whatever the Lord puts on your heart as we prepare for communion. Maybe, it's, maybe you're just wanting to get right with God and you want to confess your sins before the Lord, before you take the elements, whatever it is. But with our heads bowed, and let's remember that today's message highlighted God's work in the life of Paul and his companions in the church there at Thessalonica. Paul's prayer for the church was based on a personal relationship with the living God and God's ability to draw you to himself, to equip you to increase your love for others and to establish you in his holiness and to make you blameless on the day of judgment. Our personal relationship with Jesus and obedience to his commands is what causes you and I to gather together corporately here for fellowship for the teaching of the word and for the breaking of bread. But perhaps you're here today or you're listening to this message online and you want to share in this fellowship. And if you've made a profession of personal faith in Christ, well, I would say please join us for communion today. But if on the other hand, you're here today and you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, we want to give you that opportunity right now. If your heart is stirred for something more than what life has offered, if you have no assurance of what happens when your life here on earth ends, 
Or if you feel that you've gone too far or too long in sin and unbelief, consider the words of Jesus. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You see, God is calling you to himself. Place your trust in Christ. He died and rose again to pay for your sins. He has a gift that you can only receive by faith. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perhaps you're wondering how to receive Christ as your Savior today. I have a question. Are you ready to accept His gift of salvation by repenting of your sins and surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? If that's you here today, I would suggest this prayer. Think about it. Maybe even say it to yourself as I, as I, as I read it to you. You can say this to the Father. Father, I confess that I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross to save me from my sins. I believe that he rose from the grave. And I receive him now as my Lord, Savior, and friend. I choose to repent and turn away from my sin. And I ask you to help me live for you each day. Thank you for giving me a new life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer, you've received Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, um, this would be your first communion as a Christian. And if you have, I'd like to, you know, please come let me know or let Pastor John know. I'd like to give you a Bible and pray with you. Don't leave today without giving the Lord a chance to do a mighty work in your life, to save your life. As the worship team leads us in a song, I would invite you to come up and take your communion elements and return to your seats. too steep you are God and you are power then and now when the armies are too strong and the storm is raging on you are God and you are power then and now I not by sight for you have seen where I will go I will walk by faith 
not by sight For you know all I do not know I will trust you God and only you alone Abide. You are God and you are power then and now. There is triumph in your name. Oh, the enemy you slain. You are God and you are power then and now. I will walk by faith and not by sight. For you have seen where I will go. I will walk by faith and not by sight. For you God and only you alone. Your plan is greater than my own. You are always good. Your same apostle Paul he said I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said take 
eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This concludes our service time this week. It's been a pleasure once again. It's been a blessing to be among the saints uh, here at Calvary Chapel. We pray that the Lord would just go before you, that you would not only grow, but flourish in your faith. And remember that prayer, that personal time, that your relationship with the Lord, that you would increase with love, and that you would remain steadfast and patient in holiness for Jesus' return. Amen. Have a great day. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.